0: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Let them come. We have nothing to fear from high levels of immigration. This debate took place on the 10th of October 2013 at the Royal Geographical Society in London.
2: We're absolutely
3: in the uh, right place for this uh, subject tonight. Uh, We are talking, as you know, about immigration and what better place than Uh, an institution which celebrates Britain's place in the world and looks outward at the Royal Geographical Society. And, and I promise you, we and the organisers of the debate played no hand in this, absolutely the right time for this debate. You'll know if you woke up to uh, the Today programme this morning hearing Theresa May announcing plans to make Britain, in her words, a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants. Uh, announcing her plans for a series of steps that will make life hard for people who are here illegally uh, in terms of uh, getting access to health care or being issued with a driver's licence or even opening a new bank account. So immigration dominating the news just as we uh, gather. And if you flipped over the newspapers, that was what was on the front page. And on the back pages... Uh, Jack Wilshire of Arsenal leading off his own debate on the nature of Englishness uh, when he said that it wouldn't be right for new players who'd only been here for two or three years from abroad to be naturalised and then have a place in the England football team. He said it should be uh, England for the English, uh, prompting a reply from Kevin Peterson, who pointed out that he along with Andrew Strauss and Jonathan Trott and Matt Pryor and several other members of the England cricket team didn't hail from these parts, which reminded me of the the joke that was said when England toured South Africa, which is, where do the England team stay when they tour South Africa? Answer, with their parents. (laughs) LAUGHTER So at both ends of the spectrum, either on the front pages or the back pages, immigration and the issues that arise from it are very much in our minds. So it's the right place, the right time, and absolutely the right people arrayed before you hear this panel wearing these uh, microphone devices that make them slightly look as if they are the cast of the Book of Mormon. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER This is because these are very natty, state-of-the-art microphones, rather than some sort of facial disfigurement. So please do uh, look past that. Um, We're going to get underway very, very soon. I'm just going to give you a few notes about how we do it. Uh, As you know, it's a formal debate, so opening speeches of eight or nine minutes each from these speakers. When they're getting close to time, I will ting and ping my glass by a system of prearranged coded signals. And they will uh, then stop. Uh, We will hear from all of them. Then we open it for questions and contributions. And I put the emphasis really on questions uh, from the floor. I will make sure that both both, uh, upper and lower levels I don't mean in terms of quality, I mean in terms of seating, uh, will contribute, but do keep them short and pointed because we want to have as much time as we can to get as many voices in as we can and to hear from our speakers here. So let's get straight underway. I know you voted on your way here, uh, a preliminary vote, and I'm going to give you the results of that uh, after we've heard from our speakers, and, of course, you will then have a chance to vote again, the proper vote, the casting vote, uh, with this little card for... You put the the tear-off-the-card for if you're voting for, tear-off-the-card against if you're voting against... It is really like rocket science. It's terribly complicated. I will explain it again later. Um, Don't worry about that. So the motion before us is let them come. We have nothing to fear from high levels of immigration. Uh, To open uh, the uh, case for the motion, our first speaker is an economist formerly at the Treasury and the European Commission, and now chairs one of the most remarkable uh, museums in London, the first museum of immigration in all of Europe at 19 Princelet Street. Please welcome our first speaker for the motion, Susie Symes.
0: Hello. Migration is innate in human beings. It's what brings us together. But immigration seems to be dividing us. It divides poor countries from rich countries. It divides even rich countries from each other, as in this background to this motion, pitching Britain against Bulgaria and Romania. It divides people into us and them, into who is native, who's an immigrant. You know, that's a surprisingly old question. Go back 2,000 years. And we find Tacitus, the Roman historian, wondering who the Britons are. He says, well, are they natives or immigrants? That's open to question. Then he says, well, it doesn't really matter. We have to remember we're dealing with barbarians. Now, today, of course, we know who's a native and who's an immigrant. Except, of course, we don't. Because public perceptions are way off. The polling organization Ipsos Mori recently discovered that people think 31% of the population are foreign-born. In fact, of course, the true figure is 13%, and that's really pretty typical for any successful, wealthy country. So immigration's become or perceived to be a really big issue. And when we talk about it, we talk about facts and figures. We rarely talk about migrants themselves as human beings. So I was really excited on my way here this morning, this evening, when I, um, I saw this huge migrant memorial just across the road. You must have noticed when you came in, the Albert Memorial. And there's, there's Prince Albert. On his throne, facing those amazing museums that he created, facing the Albert Hall, the village hall of our nation, these are symbols of Britain. And they're symbols of Britishness. And they wouldn't exist, were it not, for that migrant. And they show so much. Cultural innovation, the fusion of sciences and arts, in this case, diversity of outlook, engineering innovation, even financial innovation. Of course not every migrant is Prince Albert. Not every migrant is a good migrant. Some migrants are lazy or cheats. But the story exemplifies what migrants typically bring because they bring energy and flexibility and new ideas. They develop new things, they modernize institutions that actually often felt very uncomfortable at the time that we now treasure. They do bring foreign ways, and some of them are ways we don't accept. Some of them are ways that merge with older traditions and become British by adoption, well, like Prince Albert's Christmas trees or by fusion. I'm not saying that migration is all good. Of course, there have been problems, problems of integration, and David Goodhart's written a lot about them. David may have overstated the case a little, but um, I'll be clear. I accept there are problems of adjustment, and there are problems that have affected some native British communities. But I want to focus on where we have clear evidence. And we have archaeological evidence. We have DNA evidence. We have a wealth of economic evidence. And despite all the old jokes about laying economists end to end and they'd never reach a conclusion, economists actually agree on the economic evidence around immigration. So what do we know? We know immigration isn't new. The people who say that the British were a homogenous group of people for hundreds of years until the post-war arrivals, well, they're just wrong. Sir Barry Cunliffe, one of our greatest living archaeologists, concluded, We have always been a mongrel race, and we are stronger for it. We know that immigrants don't take British jobs. In fact, they tend to make jobs. Just think about what happened at times of mass immigration, America in the late 19th century, Britain in the 1960s. We didn't see jobs being lost for natives, we saw a growth in jobs overall. And there's overwhelming research on Britain now. Immigrants working in jobs here in Britain have little or no impact on the employment of natives. And that is just as true for unskilled migrants as it is for skilled ones. If you care about unemployed, unskilled young people, and I know how passionate Harriet is about this, then the answer is to do something about their situation. Don't stop unskilled migration, which will change nothing. Now, I know there's a presumption that if you're a pro migration person, you're coming from a liberal left perspective. But my formative years were spent working in a Tory treasury for a formidable Tory Chancellor, Nigel Lawson. And I learned pretty sharpish that markets do a pretty good job. And if you want to let the state meddle in free markets, then you need some very strong evidence indeed. But in fact, of course, curbing unskilled migration is just much more likely to make matters worse. Over time, as British firms employ more people, obviously those people earn money and they want to spend the money. And as they spend it on goods and services, more people are needed to produce those goods and services and more jobs get created. And over time, As migrants do work alongside natives, and if we can help our young people into be working in jobs alongside new migrants, then you get a transfer of skills from migrants, transfer of attitudes, even a work ethic. And that is one of the most important things in the long term because that's what raises productivity and raises competitiveness and we know immigrants put more into the economy than they take out the oecd international organization authoritative recently estimated that immigrants put around seven billion more into the uk economy than they take out so don't fear immigration on economic grounds immigrants don't take native jobs they tend to make jobs immigrants are net contributors to the public purse in fact, they put more back in than native workers do. And immigrants are not sponges. As we learned just yesterday, the government can't actually provide any evidence of benefit tourism or health tourism, not on any significant scale. Now, I've been a migrant worker myself, and I came home like so many migrant workers do, bringing new skills and attitudes actually back with me. But I came home because I like this country. I want to live here, but I want to live in Britain that's a strong economy. I want to live in a Britain that can more easily afford the things that we all want, whether it's looking after our elderly or educating all our young people into work. I want a Britain that stays in the world rich list, actually, and that's got money to do good in this world. And that means staying open to migrants. It means recognizing immigrants are assets and not liabilities. Ask yourself, where will all these ambitious, flexible, hard workers go if we keep them out? Well, they're going to go to China, to America, to Germany, to our competitors. So let them come here. If we don't, we shoot ourselves in the foot. We lose the economic benefits of new jobs, higher skills, more growth, more resources to spend. And then we smartly shoot ourselves in the other foot by sending migrants away to help our competitors. So don't just let them come, welcome them.
3: Thank you, Susie. Our next speaker is going to be the first speaker against the motion. He's the director of the think tank Demos and the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine and the author most recently of The British Dream, a trenchant polemic on the subject of immigration. Our first speaker against the motion, David Goodhart.
4: Thank you very much, Jonathan. I think it was a a calm analysis, not a polemic, but um, (laughs) we'll leave that on one side. Uh, We all seem to be doing a bit of cross-dressing tonight. Um, Susie was just brandishing her Tory credentials. Well, I am what used to be called a Hampstead Liberal. Uh, As Jonathan just said, I run a centre-left think tank. I started a uh, political magazine, a liberal political monthly magazine. I'm a member of the Labour Party. I have two immigrant grandfathers, one Jewish, I even live in Islington. <laughs> so I am not against immigration in itself. Only a troglodyte is against immigration in itself. Although I did say this at a similar meeting, uh, rather smaller meeting, actually, um, a few weeks ago, and one of the fellow panelists was Peter Hitchens, who said, I am a troglodyte, actually. <laughs> um, what really separates us um, on the two sides here is one word, the word "high." If we replace replaced the word high with the word moderate, all three of us would be in favour of this motion. What we're sceptical about is the scale and speed of recent immigration to this country, which has been quite historically unprecedented. Four million net immigration of four million over, over, four, over, over 15 years including many, many years of gross inflows of six hundred thousand people. Six hundred thousand people. Now I think that has had on balance negative effects economically, culturally and socially, and indeed on balanced global development. As on, on the economy first, as Susie said, immigrants contribute to innovation, uh, we've we've got a great record of Jewish, East African, Asian, and other groups creating um, great entrepreneurial initiative. They fill skill gaps. They do dirty jobs that uh, locals don't want to do, at least at the uh, wages on offer. Um, but they do not, at this scale, improve the economic well-being of the average citizen. That is pretty clear. And contrary to what Susie says, actually, what all the academic economics on immigration says is that it's remarkably neutral in its effect on all the main kinds of indicators, growth, wages, employment, and so on. Um, Nonetheless, it is also pretty well accepted that it's, margin, it's beneficial for better-off people, for employers, and it's less beneficial for people in the bottom half or, or third, particularly, of the labour market. We have 20% of people uh, in, in low-skilled people in Britain are born abroad. That is bound to have downward pressure on wages, and there's plenty of evidence of that that it does. Of course, many people that come here are complementary to existing workers. Um, uh, But there is obviously displacement to there is clearly displacement at the, at the bottom ends. We created 2.7 million new jobs between 1995 and 2010. 2.1 million were taken by people born outside this country. Now, it's not, it's not, it's not as simple in a way as that sounds, but clearly there has been some displacement. And, it, and this whole question is very different at times when unemployment is high. I mean, when, when, when you have full employment, as we did in the 60s, then it's a very different kind of story. And I do worry that we are warehousing too many of our own weakest performers in the labour market, and we are, you know, inviting in often much more highly motivated people from Eastern Europe, the Latvian graduate, you know, with a, with a lower wage demand and a higher work ethic, and it's a form of unfair competition on our hoodies. Um, <laughs> <coughs> and, this, and this damages the social contract in Britain, um, you know, which is a, which is a pretty serious matter for all of us. Um, on, on fiscal things, Susie talked about fiscal things. It's true. Some groups, particularly East Europeans, uh, they, they they come after they've been educated, and they go often before they are retired. So they're here for the well, you know for a few years of their working life. They tend to they tend to pay in more than they take out. Although if you add in tax credits, people argue about it. It's not a huge amount. Um, but we also import have imported over recent decades you know multi-generational poverty i mean the overall picture is not at all clear on the fiscal side but just to conclude on the economics what large-scale immigration does i think is exacerbate some of the worst habits of the british economy the short-termism the failure to train uh, the the lack of investment um all of which is exacerbated now immigration isn't just about economics obviously it's economic data it's about people both the people that come here and the people that are already here. And clearly to most people in this country, or to to, to many people in this country anyway, the numbers have been unsettlingly high in recent years. People do value, and quite reasonably enough, continuity, familiarity, stability in their living arrangements. The left used to understand this. You remember Michael Young in the 1950s writing passionately about the way in which working class communities were insouciantly moved from from one area to another uh, without taking into account patterns of life and so on. We saw this with uh, the destruction of mining communities in the 1980s. The left seemed to understand the the human need for for settled patterns of life. There was even a marvellous piece in The Observer the other day from Ed Valumet talking about Notting Hill and how the old Notting Hill middle class had been discombobulated by the new super-rich who were coming in and building um, swimming pools in their basements and so on. Um, I mean, just a few few stats on the degree of change that, that I'm talking about. In 10 London boroughs, that's 10 out of 33 London boroughs, more than half of the population changes every five years. More than half of the population, that's an extraordinary degree of churn. And it's only slightly lower levels in some of our other big cities. Integration has been very successful in some places and very unsuccessful in other places. Let me just give you one statistic which which sums up the the relative lack of success in some places. in a study of the 2011 census by the academic Eric Kaufman, he looked at, he did a ward analysis of the 2011 census. He discovered that 45% of minority Britons, ethnic minority Britons, lived in wards where 45 sorry, it was 45% who lived in wards where um, less than half of the population was white British. In some cases, a lot less than half was white British. Now, that number was only 25% in 2001. So you can sort of see the degree of concentration in some places. In other places, there's been dispersal and, and happily mixed communities, but it's not everywhere. And speed and scale helps to create that. If too many people come in too quickly, it becomes, you know, countries like communities have absorptive capacities, which I think people on the other side often don't grasp. Um, at Prospect Magazine, we did an interview with, with, uh, with Ken, who's on the other side, in 2007 and we talked about when would London go majority-minority. And he said, probably not in in our lifetimes. In fact, as we were speaking, it probably already was majority-minority. As you know from the 2011 census, London is now 45% white British, having been 60% white British in 2001. You're you're seeing huge movements in the outer boroughs. Places like Barking and Dagenham, 40,000 white British people left between 2001 and, and 2011. This causes a kind of hunkering down in in the population. If if people, if it happens too quickly, if people don't have the time to, to create connections across ethnic and other boundaries, then they withdraw from the public space. Robert Putnam, the American political scientist, uh, who's a great liberal and uh, he didn't like his own findings but he found in america that, he, that there was this phenomenon of hunkering down so people even in their own communities have uh, become more estranged from each other in areas of great uh, rapid change and fragmentation and i think in the long-term survival of, of, of welfare states and and decent polities um Uh, requires a degree of of common norms and and cross-ethnic and cross-class communication uh, that is put in jeopardy by these kinds of changes. My final area is this uh, this idea of global balance. Now, if you take the brightest and the best, the most ambitious and best-educated people from poor countries, it is bound to hamper their development. as with immigration into countries like ours, at moderate, moderate levels, and particularly if people go back after they've got an education or they've had some experience of working here, it can be enormously mutually beneficial. But. As the development economist Paul Collier, who some of you will know, he's the author of the book The Bottom Billion. He spent his entire career worrying about the welfare of the poorest people in the world. He has, he has turned against the consensus amongst development economists and now argues that it is indeed against the interests of poor countries to send their best people in our direction. Um, my final point... Much of the benefit that Susie was talking about, I agree with too. But the point is, we could have those benefits in this country with net immigration of 80,000 that would still mean gross inflows of about 300,000. That's hardly a closed society. And I think we could could have all the international students, the refugees, the highly skilled people that we want. So I think you should vote against this motion. You're not a bad person if you do so, nor do you have to be a supporter of UKIP. And (laughs) with all all due regard to, to Nigel, I want to be tough on UKIP's populism, but also tough on the causes of populism from the other side of this debate. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you uh, to David Goodhart. Our next speaker and our second speaker for the motion is a political legend in this city. He served as the mayor of London, until the voters decided he should spend more time with his newts. Uh, During that time, as mayor of London, he promoted the city as a place of internationalism and multiculturalism. He is, of course, our second speaker for the motion. Please welcome Ken Livingstone.
5: Jews bring crime and disease to Britain.
6: Now, who wants to guess which paper that was a headline in? (laughs) It was, of course, the Daily Mail. I'd love to be able to tell you that it was one of the earliest stories by a cub reporter, Paul Dacre, but it actually goes back to 1906. And I can't remember a time in my lifetime when there hasn't been one group or other being demonised by the right wing media. I grew up in a London after the war where uh, the Irish were ridiculed and looked down upon. The first influx of uh, Caribbean immigration uh, was a, a big political issue. And of course, we had Enoch Powell in his Rivers of Blood speech, which didn't quite turn out as he predicted. And more recently, of course, it's been Muslims and uh, the Mail and the Express are working up to January the 1st, when it will be Romanians and Bulgarians. It's been a great way to sell papers and a great way for principal politicians to pander to prejudice and get votes on the back of it. But the simple fact is London, which has had a greater influx of immigration than I imagine, and a more diverse range of immigrants than any other city in the Western world, <coughs> London is the only city in Europe that matches American levels of productivity and competitiveness. We are 20% ahead of the next city. We are twice the European (laughs) average. And so, yes, immigration brings problems of adjustment and accommodation, but it's brought a level of benefit which uh, has helped to fuel the rebirth of London. London was a declining city. When I was born, well, just before the war started, the the, the population was 8.5 million. By the time we got to the mid-80s, it was down to 6.5 million. We're back to 8. We're on our way to nine. And it's the most amazing and dynamic city to live in. And it's the diversity of that city that makes it so wonderful. Now, all of this has been I mean, against a background in which no government has ever had a program to deal with immigration. It's just been left to happen. The debate simply has been about how much we should restrict it. Never been a program to help the assimilation of immigrants. I mean, when I was mayor, you could go down to Tower Hamlets and see Bangladeshi women queuing to try and get into the colleges where they were able to learn English as a second language. And year by year by year, half of them turned away because the, the courses were full. Any government worth its metal. and of course I'm denouncing all of them. I, would have actually had the programs in place to make certain that everybody who arrived who couldn't speak English should be enrolled on a course so they could, not underfunding it. And in a sense, it wasn't so much of a problem in the immediate post-war period up, up till 1979, because we had an economy based on full employment, and a full employment system is one in which the welfare deal is a lot lower than if you live with permanent levels of unemployment between one and three million. And right the way through that period, we were creating new homes for people to live in, quite a bit of dynamism in our economy. Since 1979, of course, we've lived with a much lower rate of growth of GDP, much lower rate of investment, and a catastrophic decline in housing. So it's not that immigrants came here and took our jobs and took our homes. We failed the political class of all parties, to build the homes for our population and create the good, high-tech, high-skill, high-paying jobs. Instead we've seen a degradation towards a low-wage economy and whole groups of people left behind. It's easy to then focus on immigrants and say, this is the problem. No, it's a failure of political leadership under Labour and Conservative governments to put in place the structures that would have made our society much more successful. Just take housing. I mean, in that period up until 1979, under Labour and Tory governments, we built between a quarter of a million and 350,000 homes a year, half to rent, local councils, the other half to buy. Over this the last 35 years, that number's come down at the moment to just about 110,000, not actually building homes for rent, creating a huge housing crisis. And don't for one minute believe, well, there's a real problem, we're already crowded, where will you put those homes? New York and Paris, like London, have 8 million citizens. In New York and Paris, they're concentrated in half the space that London has. London is the least densely populated major city in Europe. It's our failure to build. When I was mayor, now I'm sure Boris has still got the same figures, we had available brownfield sites enough to build a third of a million homes. You could break the back of a housing crisis with the political will and leadership to do it. And then on jobs. Government after government has seen our rate of investment decline and done damn all about it. Hoping that the bankers could lift us all up to a new Niverna, and we'd all benefit as they trickled down on the rest of us, or piss on us, as most people would have <laughs> bet you <she> described it. <laughs> Germany did better. Germany maintained a much larger manufacturing set- uh, sector, made certain the banks were prioritizing investment in their domestic economy, not speculating abroad. The result, they still have a manufacturing sector that provides jobs for working-class men. What you also had is it's only in the last couple of three, four years that China's overtaken Germany as an exporter of manufactured goods. Germany still exports manufactured goods to China. We aren't lacking good jobs because immigrants took them. We're lacking good jobs because successive governments fail to make certain we have the levels of investment that allow an economy to grow and modernise. Level of investment at the moment in Britain? 14% of our GDP. In America, 19%. In France, 20%. In China, 48%. But they have much better control over their bankers over there. I, a much more rigorous regime of discipline if they get it wrong. I mean, that's the pain, yeah? Whole areas. As the docks closed, as our manufacturing closed, we're left to rot. Never the programmes put in place for real retraining and achieving that level of investment that could have actually um, created those jobs and those opportunities. With the result that, yes, there has been a degree of resentment, particularly amongst working-class communities who've seen the quality of their life diminished within the lifetime, uh, well, in the last 30 or 40 years. And under all governments, I'm not making a party political point about this. So what do we do about this? I think we've got to actually accept that, yes, immigration is a tremendous boost, particularly in a world that's now completely global. If you go back to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world before then and the world now is totally transformed. The level of international trade, the level of movement of peoples, and no one is going to be able to take us back to the past. That's the reality of it. We live in a global world. If you want to erect barriers, you will wither behind them, just as the Soviet Union's economy withered behind the barriers it erected between itself and the rest of the world market. What we've got to do is tackle this. one We've got to build the homes so that the homes are there for people that need them at a price that they can afford, and that means letting councils build to rent. We've got to get the levels of investment up, tell our bankers, don't Spend all your time speculating internationally. I mean, in Germany, they have regional banks. Banks invest in rebuilding their regional economies. And that's the reality. If we are prepared to put in place the programmes, there is no problem with immigration. It's the failure of politicians that have allowed problems, and it was clearly a catastrophic error of judgement, for the last Labour government to take the advice of its civil servants that once I mean, the barriers to Internal EU migration came down and all the new accession nations from Eastern Europe could come here. There'd only be ten thousand people come. They got it the out by about twenty times. And nothing was put in place for that. And of course, in London you had a lot, of people, oh, we can get a plumber at last. Do you remember that night? I haven't got a plumber for years. But of course, in many other areas of the country, agricultural wages were depressed because people could be employed who were prepared to work for less. You've got to make certain that if we're having an open immigration policy, and I believe we should, you've got to put in place the housing and investment and wage um, policies um, to actually deal with that. I don't want to live in a low-wage economy. I want my children and grandchildren to grow up in an economy that's up there competing and investing and innovating with the rest of the world. And if you put barriers to international migration, we will slowly wither and we will decline. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Our second speaker against the motion is a journalist, an author and a research fellow at the right-leaning Think tank, the Center for Policy Studies. She's also the author of a uh, really unusual and very good book, which I must recommend to you, called Among the Hoods My Years with a Teenage Gang. (laughs) There's nothing to laugh at there, that's the title of the book. Um, The author of that book, and our second speaker against the motion, Harriet Sargent.
2: So. Let them come. We have nothing to fear from high levels of immigration. Well, who is this we? If it's me, immigration is great. We, middle classes, can now afford services that were previously out of our reach. Take my nails. (laughs) this morning I had a Vietnamese manicure which cost me 10 pounds if I'd gone to have an English manicure it would have cost me 30 or 40 pounds but let me tell you another side to this we six years ago I did a report on why black Caribbean and white working-class boys are failing I met Dave. He's, was white, he's white, he was then 23, and living on benefits in Hastings. He was very bright, but like a third of boys on free school meals, his school had failed to teach him to read and write properly. Dave didn't want to be on benefits. He wanted a job, a home, for he had a girlfriend and a baby, and he wanted to take care of them. But he is only qualified for menial work. And in Hastings, there's not very much of that. The week before, he applied for a job as a dustman, only to be told that there are 100 other people had gone for the same job. So then he'd gone to an agency, but they said He had no chance because I am English. They only took polls on their books. Polls, he said to me sadly, do all the jobs around here. Now, is that a surprise when Poland is in the top 10 of the OECD's literary league and that the UK, like poor Dave, doesn't even make it into the top 20? And Dave's case is not unique. Of the two million jobs created under Labour, 80%, according to ONS figures, went to foreign nationals. Poor state schooling and immigration have taken away Dave's future. So I get a cheap manicure. And Dave is rotting. On benefits immigration is not about race it's about class you have a situation that is great for us we are not up against poles who want our jobs or not yet but it is disastrous for the very people that I thought the left were meant to represent What does it say about the craziness of our immigration system that Red Ken is here standing up for well-educated and skilled immigrants and that it is left to me, I mean for goodness sake I write for the Daily Mail, (laughs) it is left to me to stand up for the poor and the dispossessed. Let's look at another part of this, we. Six years ago, I befriended a South London gang. They and their families are most reliant on the state. It is them and not us who are at the mercy of our overcrowded hospitals, schools and housing. These young men are equally at the mercy of our prejudices, the kind of prejudice that David Ivanovich displays in his column. How many times have I been told? How many times have I read, oh, we need immigration because our people just won't work? Wrong. Immigrants work. And my South London gang reject work for the same reason. Money. Let me explain that with another bit of this we. A swagger, a black Caribbean in his 20s, and why he does not work. After I encouraged him, he got a job at Twickenham Stadium in hospitality. He loved it. But he was a little bit surprised that he was the only English person there. We soon discovered why with his first pay packet. He was a third worse off on it than when he was on benefits. Which one of us would work if we lost a third of our income? And then the bailiffs came because he now had a job He had to pay council tax, but he didn't have the money to pay council tax. And I can tell you all that the bailiffs are very frightening. I know because I was there when they came. We had to escape by climbing out of the kitchen window. Work is a luxury he could not afford. For the Poles that he was working with it was a very different story on the minimum wage here they as he saw on a tv program can save and buy a four-bedroom house with a nice garden back in poland and even send their children to polish private school as swagger said to me if the minimum wage got me that in london and private school for the kids, I would be out there working all hours. Instead, I get the bailiffs kicking down my front door. My final bit of this we is Sunshine, another member of my South London gang I befriended. And it is the opportunities he lacks compared to his grandfather. His grandfather had a traditional education in Jamaica and then came over as an immigrant uh, to the UK where he got um, an excellent four-year apprenticeship in a car factory. It set him up for life. He's worked all his life. He owns his own home. For his grandson, it is a very different story. His grandson came out of school with not nearly the, the, the level of education of his grandfather. And then when I tried to find something for Sunshine, it, 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 was, a, it was very difficult. I mean, on-the-job apprenticeships of that quality just barely exist. You have to pay for a course, which is, can be anything from £5,000 upwards, and there's no guarantee of a job at the end of it. Because why would a firm go to the expense and trouble of providing vocational training when they can already get trained Eastern Europeans off the shelf? Poland, for example, has excellent vocational training. But what is the result? Instead of being a homeowner and a taxpayer like his grandfather Sunshine is on benefits. According to the London School of Economics, the cost of this lost generation is £90 million a week. So the we in this motion is these young men. If we are answering this question, they have a lot to fear. Dave said to me, I see men in their 40s who've been on benefits all their life. They spend their day taking drugs and drinking. I don't blame them, but it's too early for me. I don't want to be beat like that. Unfortunately, immigration is beating him. So... I urge you to think of Sunshine and Swagger and Dave. They are the we. Vote against the motion.
3: Thank you. you. Our next speaker is the last speaker in favor of the motion to remind you again let them come we have nothing to fear from high levels of immigration he is the multiply award-winning columnist and since this appears to be fashionable these days uh, a former member of the communist party uh it's so important a columnist for the independent the guardian the observer in the past and now uh, for the times please welcome as i say the last speaker for the motion david aronovich thank you
7: In a way, it's odd that we, on this side, are proposing the motion, because according to the polling done by the Conservative, Lord Ashcroft, significant polling is a a very big funder of good political information about 17 percent of the country and no more supports the proposition of the motion Uh, about 60 percent would support the opposition to the motion in a way you've got to ask yourself why it is that we are having to propose a motion and the opposition are not proposing instead their motion which is that mass immigration has been bad for britain Uh, incidentally before we go on um uh, I wasn't aware that there was such a thing as a Vietnamese manicure and an English manicure. Uh, I presume on the Vietnamese manicure, they give you little pictures of Ho Chi Minh on the cuticles uh, and so on. Or is the only difference the price, Harriet? Is it just the price? It's price. So it's only the price. The only price difference between the Vietnamese manicure and the English manicure is the price. That's begging the question why you didn't go to the English one, if you felt that strongly about it. But nevertheless... <laughs> What I'm saying is, I think it would have been much more difficult for the opposition to be the proposition, which is to prove to you that mass migration had been harmful. We've already heard that the best case, really, that the opposition can make is that the economics are neutral. They grudgingly will admit that there is a significant amount of benefit, and yet we know that the polls show that the vast majority of British, or a large majority of British people, think that mass migration has been harmful. In other words, they've somehow absorbed a message that even the opposition to this motion don't accept. no, no, it's not just exactly, David, precisely going to be my point. We will get on to your notion about what else it's about in a moment. It's not just about economics. It's not primarily about economics. A lot of people think it is, but in fact, it isn't. Because we can agree that by and large, at the very least there has been some benefit to migration and I think that Susie and Ken and I would argue that the figures actually show that there has been significant benefit to this country from mass migration uh, and significant benefit in terms of innovation and also in terms of that thing that it's strange to find the right not believing in anymore, in terms of competition. Remember competition? If you face competition, the idea is you improve. According to the opposition of this notion, uh, as I've understood them, if you face competition, actually you give up. That's actually the model which we're supposed which is an unusual model to discover people on the Conservative side of the argument David actually supporting. Nevertheless. The next, the next thing that we can dispense with are the things which are essentially our myths about immigrants, which people believe, which we know are not true, and which by and large the opposition have not tried to peddle to us, which is to their credit. Myths that Uh, immigrants are more likely to claim benefits and so on. In fact, There seems to be a and this is not very surprising because by and large the people who migrate tend to be more motivated they tend to be younger thus they help us out with a demographic problem maybe in the short term until we need new groups of immigrants but nevertheless they do because by being younger they're more likely to be in the income tax bracket and therefore to pay taxation and they're less likely to claim and indeed that appears to be the pattern they put more back in than they take out, and they contribute more than, uh, than people who are not migrants. This is not an excuse, incidentally, for deporting non-migrants out of the country on the basis that they don't contribute enough. Although, actually... If you take David Goodhart's position that what we need to reach is a situation of net migration of 80,000, one way in which you could get to a net migration of 80,000 is by deporting a few more people who are already here, and that would bring your net clearer down to your figure, which just shows how ridiculous net migration figures are, one way or the other. I mean, how utterly, completely arbitrary and absurd. But as David says, this is not just about economics. Nor is it about the myths. What you've discovered recently is that far from being too dim and bringing the educational level down, which was what used to be said about migrants, they are now too clever and as a result, people can't compete with them significantly and so on and it just isn't fair. Instead of being shirkers, etc., and coming over here for our National Health Service, it turns out that actually they don't shirk anything like enough, which means... (laughs) which means that you get to the appalling position whereby an employer faced with an illiterate ex-gang member on the one hand and a poll on the other makes the lazy decision to employ the poll. Whereas, according to Harriet's notion, if the poll weren't there at all, the employer would heartily and immediately endorse the former illiterate, the illiterate former gang member. Well... Here's, here's, here's the question no you can't here's the question would you is that what you would do it isn't which suggests that actually we want to locate this problem somewhere else and i hope to come to that before i finish my speech so we next come to the if you like the nub of david goodhart's objection to mass migration um, he says it's a matter of the speed with which it's happened and let's start first of all by suggesting by by remembering that this of course is not about race you used not to be allowed to talk about immigration because you'd be called racist now you can't suggest that anybody who's opposed to immigration does so partially because of race you've got allowed to say it it gets people extremely cross and yet when i turn to david's own book i find a section right at the beginning about the speed not with which there are a number of migrants into this country, but the speed, and he referred to it, with which we are going black. Um, a demo, this is a demographic revolution, says David. Uh, why is it a demographic revolution? Because according to the ONS, census of 2011, the population of England and Wales that was not white British in 2011 was a fraction under 20%. But by the time of the next census in 2021, the visible minority population, the visible minority presumably being, David, people who don't look like most of us look, yeah? People of non-European background as the visible minority will have risen from 14% today to around 20% for England and Wales and a few years later for the whole of the United Kingdom. That means, says David, the visible minority proportion of the population, including people of mixed backgrounds, will have trebled in just 25 years. To which my immediate reaction is, so what? So what if they have? Those would include, for instance, my mixed-race nephew and my two mixed-race sons of, and, and daughters of my other nephews and so on. And presumably that will also go for a large number of people, a number of people in this room as well. Uh, uh, it is hard for me to see this as being itself a problem but david then goes on london remains around 57 percent white including non-british whites and 43 percent visible minority but we'll also certainly almost certainly be minority vis- majority visible minority majority visible minority by the time of the next census and uh, he says if britain had a clear and confident sense of itself that wouldn't be a problem but since it doesn't then it actually is, uh, in other words, well, the problem here is the speed with which we're turning black. If we could just turn black a little bit more slowly, then in fact, we would like it better. And yet, this is not a conversation about race. Uh, it is, of course, partially a conversation—not entirely, but t- partially—a conversation about race. But as the conversation about, as the discussion about vocational training proves, it is actually about something else as well. Today, we've seen the bringing in uh, and the introduction and the publishing of the immigration bill. Now, the interesting thing about the immigration bill is it seeks to solve a problem we don't have, i.e., that there are lots of immigrants using our services uh, uh, beyond what other people do. It also tries to tackle the problem of illegal immigration by making people like landlords and hospitals, et cetera, check people's status before they take them. on. Well, and incidentally, I do hope you were asked about yours before you came in this evening. I really do. I wouldn't like to think that there were any illegal immigrants taking places in this hall away from perfectly legal people. I think we should all do our bit I really do, to make sure that none of them get in. Any illegal immigrants here? Put your hands up. (laughs) Out. Go. Off you go. Ridiculous. Um, But it isn't really about that. It's a cynical bill. It's a cynical bill because, actually, the very people it's targeted at don't believe it will work. And the government... Introducing it doesn't believe it will work. They simply want to tell those people, including Nigel Farage's uh, 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 voters, that actually it's safe to come back to them and vote for them. It won't actually have any effect on immigration. Actually, I'm pretty sure that Nigel Farage will say the same thing in a moment's time. But actually, when he does, it will be self-serving. Except when I do, it's not. Okay. (laughs) This
3: time is very You're going to have to. I just
7: want to finish with what Lord Ashcroft said at the end of his report because it struck me as being true. The reason why immigration has become so important, he said, people's concerns about immigration are part of a bigger set of anxieties. They see the pace of change continuing and even accelerating. And they know Britain in 20 years will look different from the Britain of today. It was very interesting that all David's examples about major change actually did not involve immigration at all as it happens. And they know Britain in 20 years will look different from the Britain of today, let alone that of 20 years ago. Some welcome that, many are ambivalent, and others are scared. In the end, migration is inseparable from global economic conditions. Governments appear as powerless to manage the first as to deal with the consequences of the second. What this motion invites you to do is to see the benefit of immigration But not join with those who say that somehow or other the problem of change is mostly a problem of immigration. It is not. It is a problem of a people adapting to the new, and we don't help them to do it by pointing the finger of blame at people actually who are not responsible. Vote for the motion.
3: Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Our final speaker is the white male, middle-aged, former stockbroker who says he wants to change the face of British politics. He is, of course, the you'll get there in the end. He is, of course, the leader of the UK Independence Party, UKIP, which calls for an end to mass, what it calls mass uncontrolled immigration. Please welcome the last speaker against the motion, Nigel Farage.
5: Well, Jonathan, thank you and good evening. What you forgot to say was, and the descendant of political refugees, because my forebears were French and they were Protestant and they were Huguenot, and rather than be burnt at the stake, they came to this country. And it's interesting that if you think of all the countries in Europe, the one that has been the most open, the one that has been the most welcoming, whether it was to the Huguenots, whether it was to two big migrations of Jews, whether it was to the Ugandan Asians that mean threatened to kill, this country has been the most open and has been the most welcoming. And yet, just ten years ago, when I stood up and said that I thought it was the height of irresponsibility to open our doors unconditionally to eight former communist countries in Eastern Europe. I was howled down and abused and called all the names under the sun um, and and, and told effectively uh, that it wasn't even respectable to have a debate about immigration in this country. Well, that has changed, and that's the most important thing tonight, is we are actually talking about this subject. And I'm not against immigration, but I'm against uncontrolled immigration. We need to control immigration. We need to choose the people that are coming to live, work and settle in this country. And and, and not one of us on our side is against immigration or against immigrants. You know, there's no doubt the food is better. Uh, No question about it. Uh, You know, I'm just about old enough to remember how appalling food was even in London. So that's good. And a bit of diversity in life, particularly in our cities, is fun and it's good. But we must think about this in terms of it being a numbers game. And we need to think about this with some sense of historical context. You know, I mentioned the Ugandan Asians. When they came, there was a massive national debate. Could this country cope with the sheer number of people? And in the end, the decision was taken uh, that whether we could cope or not morally, we had an absolute duty to help those people, and 27,000 people came from Uganda um, and have all done phenomenally well. And, in fact, if you think back to, you know, Ken talked about the 1950s and about Windrush and about the beginning of Caribbean immigration. If you look at the way we handled immigration post-war, 30 to 50,000 people a year came and settled in this country consistently over half a century. Until, of course, that is, Mr Blair got into office and decided that he wanted to rub the noses of the right in diversity and started to pursue an immigration policy on a scale that we've never seen before. Added to which, with EU membership in 2004, we opened the doors yet further. You know, David Blunkett told us an extra 13,000 would come a year uh, from eastern europe and 800,000 came in the first two years in the whole history of these islands we have never seen migration on a scale that we've seen in the last 15 years uh, from, from 30 to 50,000 a year it is now 450 to 500,000 people a year that are coming into this country it's a minimum net 4 million increase since 1997 so it's very important to get a handle on it now look i i completely understand that for the rich for people living in kensington this is marvelous it's cheaper chauffeurs it's cheaper nannies and cheaper gardeners in the cotswolds where you go at the weekends i mean all of that's lovely and i totally understand that if you're a big employer that it's a good thing because it means cheaper labor and it's had a positive effect on wage inflation in this country. All of that, in economic terms, is totally undeniable. Uh, But what is also undeniable, despite the claims of the other side, is that we have had an oversupply in the unskilled labour market in this country since 2005. And as a direct result of that, youth unemployment in Britain has gone from 600,000 in 2005 to over a million today. And it is direct, and it is causal, and yes, I know there are problems with British, with, with British education, and I accept that. But, David, you know, not all these youngsters are illiterate gang members, and I really get upset with this myth that Blair started and that all the national newspapers now push that almost all young British people are lazy and useless. I can tell you, in the earlier part of this year, I spent a fortnight touring the length and breadth of England in the the run-up to the county elections, and everywhere I went, I found desperate young people really wanting to get work, but now feeling discriminated against in their own country. The first person I met that that made me realise this was a 16-year-old girl in Peterborough who told me she couldn't get a job at the local packing factory because she couldn't speak Polish. And if you now, in many of those eastern counties, wanted to go and get the jobs picking cauliflowers or cabbages or fruit in season, you've got no chance, because the gangmasters are in control, and it's Poles and Lithuanians and perhaps even Portuguese that get the jobs. We have, through irresponsible, open-door immigration, on a scale never seen in Britain before, effectively betrayed working-class people in this country. And it's led to great social division. Uh, In in, in many parts of the country, we're now divided by language. I don't think it's a good thing that 82% of primary school children in Newham come from families in which English is not the first language. That's not uniting people. That's not bringing people together. That's actually dividing people. And all over this country, not just in the big cities, but actually uh, in the market towns, everywhere I've seen it, I get the feeling uh, that this country is less happy with itself, less at ease, and we have growing social tension. Now, we intend, of course, to continue with this process, because we intend next year, on the 1st of January, to open our doors unconditionally to two countries that are even poorer, to two countries that sadly have not recovered from communism, to two countries that have within them a completely dispossessed, discriminated against group um, of people, the Roma, uh, numbering between 4 and 5 million. Uh, And I think, really, why I'm urging you to vote against this motion is that it is irresponsible to have an open door, not to have some degree of control. And it's something that is clearly not wanted in this country. David said 60%, well, whether it's 60 or 70 or 80 or whatever it is, the overwhelming majority of people in Britain want us to have some degree of control. And that doesn't mean we don't want any immigration. Of course we do. We want many of the brightest and the best coming into this country, especially into London and into our wealth-creating industries. Of course we want people. Of course I want us to have an immigration policy based very much on the one that the Australians have. Let's have control, let's get good people, let's get people that want to integrate and will integrate, but you cannot support a motion that says that high, which means basically no control over immigration, is a good thing for Britain. And whilst the use of the word fear in the motion perhaps is pushing it a bit, we should at least, I would suggest be deeply concerned uh, that successive British governments, the coalition following on from Labour, have learnt nothing from the lessons of the past. We do not need massive oversupply in the unskilled labour market in this country. We need to get a grip and take back control of our borders properly. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That uh, brings—that was the last of the formal speeches for and against the motion. It's going to be your turn next. Before we get to that, before we open up the debate, I want to uh, give you the result of the vote that you—the votes you cast—as you came uh, into the hall here, and uh, all to play for, really, absolutely split, I would say, uh, evenly. Before the debate, 30% of you were for the motion. The Believed, in other words, yes, let them come. 30% of you, just under a third, said that. Against that motion, in other words, don't let them all come. Uh, Just over a third at 37%. And then the don't knows, the group that are absolutely crucial to be and all to be played for. Exactly one third, 33% of you were don't knows. So they're the group that all of our speakers here are working hard to target, the swing voters, as it were. And, uh, and we'll compare again those numbers once you vote uh, at the end. So let's now open uh, up to questions, contributions, etc. I see a hand here. There are, we have people with microphones. I'm going to take these in a group. So if the microphone can come here. And have we got somebody there? We'll do those first two. And uh, where, is there a microphone over there? Yes? Have you got a microphone? So if you get it to that hand nearest you. OK. So we'll start with you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I think it needs to be made clear that migrants have no recourse to public funds. It's very clearly stamped in their passport, which makes me wonder what, uh, how, how the panel thinks. When does someone stop being a migrant? Do they have to have been living here for a certain number of years? Is it when you're naturalised? Do you have to have been born here? Do your parents have to be born here? Um, just a comment to Harriet on her example of swagger in the polls. Briefly, um, yeah. A Polish person earning the same amount as, a, as, as Swagger seems to have enough money to pay for their lifestyle in the UK, as well as send money home for a four-bedroom house and their kids' school fees and pay council tax. Yet Swagger doesn't have enough money to pay council tax. And just a final comment on Australia. In terms of family immigration rules, Australia has no income requirement for its citizens and residents to bring in a spouse, unlike the 18,600 which we have here. They okay. also encourage the adult dependent relatives to come in at a younger age when okay. they're healthier Thank in order you. to encourage integration. Thank you. I, I, it's I'm, pretty much. I'm, I'm going to have
3: empty. to cut you off because otherwise, if everybody speaks as long as you do, we, we won't get, uh, be able to leave. Yeah, let's hear from you. Yeah. Thank you, well, I've got a note of the question and the points. Yeah. Uh, the nasty right wingers like Nigel Farage would like to restrict the rights of fantastic South Asian women like uh, Malala from coming to this country. The nasty left wingers. Uh, are happy for fantastic South Asian girls like Malala to be aborted. Would these left-wingers be willing to clearly state that not only are they willing for South Asian women to live in this country, but to live? Okay, I feel you've slightly taken this into different territory. That, (laughs) That issue has been debated by Intelligence Squared and will be again, but we're probably not the one for tonight. Who's got the microphone there? Yeah.
6: Uh... Would David Ivanovich be happy to share with us his views on the correlation between numbers coming in and the prospects for integration, assimilation, but particularly any link that he could see between numbers and what I would think is assimilation, I hope he accepts that concept. Thank you.
3: Are you clear on what he's asking there? Because I-, I wonder if we just need to press you. You say what would be an acceptable number? Is
6: that what you're asking? Yes, how easy would... I mean, is there a link between how easy it is for immigrants coming into this country to become part of the whole, part of the the we, and the numbers? It's an old
3: question. It's a numbers question. As Nigel Farage said, it is a numbers game. Is is there somebody (laughs) who has a microphone nearby here? Okay, one there. I'm going to just get four in now. Yeah. A a question for the uh, speakers against the motion. I just wanted to know how... They would address the pension underfunding problem that this country faces in uh, both private enterprises and uh, for public prospective retirees without the benefits of mass immigration. Right. How will there be enough money to pay for people's pensions without immigration? Yes. Thank you. I know there's lots of hands. I'm only going to take clusters of three or four, uh, and then, and I, but I will come back. So, hands down, while we get some answers to those questions, um, what about the... Uh, David Aronovich, to you, in a way is there any limit, or, or are the numbers limitless that you think Britain can absorb and can be
7: yeah, absorbed into the country? No, I don't... I'm... <laughs> You know, I don't think that you could say that they're limitless, but what I'm saying, what I think is that we haven't reached the limits. But I, that, the question that was being asked really was uh, goes back to this question of the speed with which people come in uh, and the problems of integration, simulation and so on. Um, And if we look at the bolts of things which surround that, let's say the debate about forced marriages, not arranged marriages, forced marriages, um, or or let's say the wearing of the niqab and so on, or or the business of people being sent back to Pakistan, girls being sent back to Pakistan without finishing their education, it is clear that in some of what we call migrant communities. There are significant problems of transition, and there still continue to be significant problems of transition. And each time we come up against that, we have to try and deal with it. It's equally clear that, amongst other uh, uh, migrant communities, there are nearly no problems of transition. So it makes it very difficult. And I think, for David, example? Uh, well, for instance, it's very difficult. I think to argue that you can tell by walking down the street and by conversation, uh, uh, sorry, walking down the street unless you hear the conversation, what is a young Pole and what is uh, somebody who was born in, L- you know, you, you, uh, you, you, you uh, there's you're no, you no, not now back into
3: the visible minority territory that you condemned. No, no,
7: no, him no, no, no. I, 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 th- I, th- I have not yet heard of of Polish Catholics wearing the niqab, for instance. Um, uh, and so, and so. Nor, nor do I think is that, that, that kind of density okay. of, of separation that you get in the northern mill towns in particular, where you get very significant problems of community separation. All I'm saying is that for the vast majority of migrants don't fit into the categories that seem to have enormous difficulties with integration and assimilation. OK. Um,
3: Nigel Farage, I'm going to make this quite quick because I want to get more people in. Uh, you were the one who mentioned Australia, and the questioner said that there is actually no income uh, requirement in Australia, and so would you be happy with that, for example? Well, I mean,
5: you can't go to Australia if, if you have a ser- serious criminal record. You can't go to Australia... Not if, at the very beginning. It's rather have, different. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they have rather reverse that. They'd rather reverse that. <laughs> that's uh, rather new, yeah. You know, it, yes, it used to be mandatory, of course, but um, <laughs> you can't go to Australia if you've got a life-threatening disease. Uh, You have to be basically under the age of 45, um, and you have to have some skill or trade of some kind to bring. Um, And if you listen to successive Australian prime ministers, they're very, very clear. They couldn't care less where you come from, what your religion is, what your colour is, but when you come here, you become part of the Australian dream. Uh, And I would argue that is a good, sensible model for us to think about some new immigration rules once we've got got back control of our borders.
3: You mentioned the, the, the whole... You, she was talking about the rule for spouses, but you just mentioned life-threatening diseases. Is that something you think is a danger here, with immigrants coming here, they well, bring in diseases?
5: It's very interesting. I mean, the NHS debate on this is very interesting, because the argument always gets put, oh, well, of course, if we didn't have migrant workers, uh, you know, the hospitals couldn't possibly run. Uh, but we're beginning to hear the counter-argument, slowly but surely, that actually uh, many, many billions of pounds a year are being used effectively... To treat people who are coming here uh, for the reasons of health tourism, and I think, well, we don't know, David, and that's the point. And, and, no, and you, well, know, you know, it's billion? exactly the same. It's exactly the same. How do you know it's billions if you don't same? know how much it is? It's exactly the same as the government you just admitted. Just made it up. As the government admitted. <laughs> as, the government admitted <laughs> as the government admitted two days ago. You know, part of the row that's been going on. You know, what is the cost? of social benefits mm. to Eastern Europeans in this country, and the government doesn't have any figures. And the NHS doesn't have any figures. So it's quite difficult for us to get a handle so on this. You can make but, up now. surely... Well, well, we don't do Go that, on. you yeah. see, cos we try and deal objectively and facts, uh, And that's the whole point okay. about, about the immigration debate, that the facts are that, that more people yep. settled in this country in 2010 and came between 1066 and, and 1950. Okay. You know, and, and that gives you some idea of what, of what we're talking
3: about. There are so many people who want to come in. Please don't try and come back in again. Um, uh, two, there were two questions. Uh, that were directed at this side of the table. So, David Goodhart, do you want to just address this point about how will we pay our pensions, dependents, if we don't have immigrants in the workforce? And do it briefly, you can, and then I'm going to take another round.
4: Um, I I do, first of all, though, just want to come back on um, David Aronovich's rather sort of snide implication that I I was uneasy about the racial nature of the change in this country. Race has not been central to debate tonight. It is not central to the, to the national debate now, as it was in the post-colonial period in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. The point is, in 1950, Britain was almost entirely white. So the, the measurement of demographic change is partly the measurement of the different, different ethnic composition of the country. I mean, if you're saying that it's not reasonable to talk about these changes, longer, you're, you're pushing the debate back and I'm, as, everybody on your side seems to be in the 1980s. You're having a debate about whether immigration is a good thing or a bad thing. We're not having a debate. We're, we're having a debate here about whether high immigration should be happening or not. And one of the reasons, one of the really poor reasons for having very high levels of immigration is pension point. I mean, all the serious economists have long since rejected this idea because you get onto a treadmill. I mean, unless you want the, the population of Britain in 1900 was 30 million. The population of Britain in 2000 was about 60 million. If you want the age structure to remain the same, the population of Britain at the end of this century will have to be 120 million. Now, people who want the age structure to say, say, well, we've got to have lots and lots of immigrants. We have to we get onto this treadmill of population increase. And the point is, you know, that, that immigrants get old, too. They quite quickly converge on the family size of the existing population. It really is no answer at all.
3: OK. Because you are. I'm going to come back to all of you, so don't worry about that. You've got a questioner there, and I know there's lots of people to get in, so I'll try and get in as many of you as you can, and if you're brief, that will help me. Yeah.
1: Hi. Um, my question goes out to whoever is in charge
0: of the procurement of talking heads. Uh, why is it that in a debate on immigration, there are no immigrant, but rather someone who can trace his immigration,
3: his family history, back to the Huguenots, or someone with a friend in South London. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um. If it's thank you um i'll speak on behalf of the organizers here just on that very specific point while of course we have the most stellar panel we could ever have dreamed of the organizers do tell me they did try indeed to get an exactly the speaker uh, and they approached several people several people and they did actually decline the invitation so that point was thought of let's hear the question from you there
1: hello my name is suhan hancock um it seems to me that the entire panel agrees that the real problem is poor education and the fact that all these terrible immigrants are simply better. Now, if you believe in a free economy and free markets, why don't you just make your product better and then you don't have anything to fear?
3: Okay. thank you. Thank you. Um, Somebody has got the microphone next there. Yeah. Um, The whole debate tonight seems to have been a little one-sided in the sense that... Um, we've only talked about people coming into this country and it's effectively a debate about
6: protectionism. Now can you imagine having a debate about trade where we say we would really like to export to every country in the world but we won't let them import anything here. And so the other
3: side of this debate is if we want to close down our borders we will have to accept that we will not be able to work or live in any other country as British people because I can't imagine that the entire world will keep open their borders for us to move to if we want to put controls in place in the other direction. And so the, okay. the population of Brit- British people living in France and Spain, but also in North America and many other places, will be dramatically affected by these kind of changes. Thank you. That's a sharp question, and I'll make sure it comes out. I'm also aware, by the way, that so far the two questions we've got have been directed at this end of the table. So if you do have a question that is challenging the side for the motion, that will be good. So maybe keep your hand up for that. You've got the microphone here, I hope young woman who spoke to us before, who told us of her confidence speaking before a big audience. Here we go. Um,
1: I have a question for Anne against. Maybe
3: just do the one for, because oh, we're okay. short of time. Um,
1: yeah. I was going to say that since one of the speakers said that London's population is drastically changing every five years, don't you think that London will lose its ability to provide people with, like, a communal sense of existence?
3: OK. And, and you, because you think that's a threat, if it keeps churning, it will lose that sense of community. Yes. Thank you. Okay. And then there's a lady here who should have the microphone being brought to her. Hang on, you did have your hand up before. Yeah, you've got it. Okay, off you go.
1: Yes, hi. This is for either side, really, but um, I'm an American. I came here three years ago to get a master's degree, and I stayed here on a post-study work visa, which allowed people who got a degree here to stay for two years and spend some time in society working and contributing back. While I was on that visa, this debate about numbers and focusing on numbers really came to the fore, and they canceled the post-study work visa program. It was one of the first ones to go. So I'm just wondering if anyone has any thoughts about making this an issue about net migration and numbers and whether that has effects on certain non-EU migrants or groups of migrants that might be easier to regulate than than others.
3: Because your fear is that might be deterring people like you who c- want to come here to study, etc.
1: Absolutely. Or people who have studied and want to stay.
3: OK. Um, thank you. I know there's more people who want to get in. If we have time, I'm going to do another round. And if I can even get in another one after that, I will. But let's put these questions to you. Why don't we start with you, Susie Symes, this um, point about the churn that the questioner asked. You know, if the population in London, just take London as an example, is going through that kind of turn and and churn and upheaval, how do you maintain the kind of sense of community in a city as big as this, if the population is moving as much as it is?
0: I see why that appears to be a worry but one of the things I would do is just point out at how many other periods in the past, if we take a long enough view, this has happened. You know, because this nonsense about talking about levels of numbers, it really breaks my heart. We just have to think in terms of percentages when we worry about absorption and change. And we're talking about 1% of the population a year. It's 1% coming in. It, it, it doesn't matter. To 1% across species, the whole
3: country. Yes, but in, across in, the whole in, country. But in an area of, of huge course it, immigration like London, global,
0: more. global cities like London, like Paris, like Berlin, like New York, are cities that are changing faster. That's the world that we live in that's a global world you want to be in cities that are attracting people to come in and you want to hold the good people when they do come and we just need to find ways in which we build on small communities that give people a sense of engagement with where they live but also recognizing that they're part of a big city and a big world that's changing very fast
3: OK. Ha- Harriet, Sergeant, I want to put to you the, the point, because it relates, in a way, to the stories you were telling about uh, the, the teenage gang that you worked with for, for your book. This idea that the questioner said, well, if, you know, if you believe in free markets and the product's not good enough, the product in this case being workers uh, who are British-born, then you've just got to make the product better so they can compete. And it picks up the challenge David Aronovich said. You know, we used to... People on the right used to say competition was great. Now you seem to be arguing that, comp- you know, if competition's too strong, people will give up. So what's your response to that? <laughs>
2: Uh, Me? Well, I... Yeah. I say yes. I mean, I mean my, I'm passionately keen that, the that these young men are just having their lives wasted, and that, of course, we've got to give them um, the skills and the motivation that the immigrants have. And I, um, rather like Nigel, have you know, been round the country and interviewed large numbers of these young people, and have been completely broken-hearted. Here, are, they're, they're bright, they're ambitious, but they just simply have not give, been given the very basic tools to compete. So I agree that that is quite unfair. I also, um, I think picking up, that there was a question about this kind of free market, which I thought was a great question. Um, And, you know, I'm all for free markets, but then you've got to, at the same time, have a kind of level market. And at the moment, the sort of... um, the, 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 the push and the pull is, is so very different. I mean... Um, How would
3: you make the market lower? Well,
2: the minimum wage, I mean, just to give an example, um, the minimum wage here is, is, is four times... Um, the average wage in Poland and nine times in Romania. So it's rather like me suddenly hearing that there's an EU country that was offering four times our average wage. Our average wage is around about £26,000. Was offering four times our average wage for, for, to do sort of um, cleaning or washing or whatever. OK. I mean, I would g- immediately get my daughter, who is this uh, young, um, uh, c- same age as immigrants, you know, ambitious and skilled like them. i say, look, you can go put her on a plane and send her off. In all seriousness, why... why? Because, I mean, it's the equivalent... It, it, I'm just trying to give... It's okay. the equivalent of £100,000 for yeah. us.
3: But well, that leads to then the other question, which was this is a two-way street, and if we close the borders so that people can't come in, then our British citizens can't go out to the rest of the world and work there. Nigel Farage, what about that? Because British workers are all over the
5: world, entrepreneurs yeah, yeah, in yeah, America yeah, yeah. and Australia. Free the trade, Two-way street, surely. Free trade deals are never accompanied by total open-door free flows of people who can go and live, work and settle somewhere. Free trade deals nearly always have with them, you know, sensible reciprocal work permit schemes, and there is an encouragement of people working in each other's countries. And I sometimes think what we've gone wrong with this is we've forgotten what work permits are, because we've sort of got... We, we, we've done away with that. People don't come here to work so much. Now they come here actually to settle and to use the health service and if they need to claim benefit or put their kids through primary school. So let's think a little bit more, perhaps, about work permits. And, you know, I'll tell you this, on this point about free trade, even Milton Friedman, the high priest of free markets, even Friedman, who believed in the free flow of goods, capital, and services. Even Friedman never believed in the free flow of people, especially between rich and poor countries. Thank you.
3: Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to squeeze in these last few, and then we're going to have closing speeches here while you vote. So these last three need to be really brief. gentlemen here, and then we're going to get the microphone to the young man there, and in between we're going to go to the lady who's got the microphone over there, and that's going to be all, I'm afraid. Yeah. Could both sides explain how they're going to pay for their respective policies? Housing, if it's unlimited, who's going to pay? If you're going to restrict, how are you going to pay to improve the infrastructure at a time of uh, shortages of money? Thank you. If we can get this microphone back to the very young man in the white shirt there, keep your hand up. Yeah, that's it, so we can know where to get to. And then the lady who's got the microphone here, yeah.
1: So we heard two arguments. One, that it isn't about race, and two, that it is about class. Um, Firstly, on the point about it being about class and saying that... um, the, uh, it is the working class that have to fear the immigrants. I think the working class have to fear us and the politicians because for the past 20 years we have not put in the public policy to give them the chance to be able to compete. And secondly, the point you make about London being 45% white British, I'd like to point out that I am very British. I may not be white, but I'm very British, and therefore um, statements like that really don't help these types of debates.
3: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And then this is going to be the last contribution from the floor. Yeah.
0: Hi. Um, this is a question um, for the opposition, but I suppose could be commented on by the proposition as well. Sure. Um, there seems to be an inconsistency in your um, speeches. First, David, you say how there's this, like, terrible brain drain in which um, all the intelligent people from the... Um, Countries which people are emigrating from are of coming here and of taking all the talent away, and we should rather keep the um, intelligent and educated people there. And then we hear from Nigel Farage that we should actually be handpicking our people so we only get the bright and intelligent people uh-huh. who are going to contribute to our economy. So, which, if either of you are actually right?
3: Ah, <laughs> oh, very okay. So, you sensed a contradiction on that side. Thank you for that. Here's where we've got to the moment where you are all going to vote. People will be moving around among you. Uh, with ballot boxes. If you are voting for the motion, in other words, you are, believe immigrants can come, let them come. You're voting with this team over here, with Susie, Ken and David. Tear off the bit that says for. And if you are against, you're with Nigel, Harriet and David. Please plot the bit that says against. Keep... Shh! We're still going to have speeches. I need you to keep the volume down. If you want to abstain, you put the entire card in the box the whole card in the box now keep the volume you don't need this is it's a silent ballot as well as a secret ballot you need to keep the volume level low because we now have summing up speeches, which you may hear as you uh, come, uh, come to finalise your vote. We're going to do this in reverse order, just two minutes each, because we are running against the clock. And I'm going to start with, in reverse order, so Nigel Farage, let's start with you. What, and it's Closing remarks, and perhaps pick up the questioner there who said he spotted a contradiction, some saying pick the best and the brightest, others saying it's because the best and the brightest are coming. They're denying jobs to our young people here. So Nigel Farage, you can do it at the table here. Actually, Thank you. The figure. argument
5: wasn't. The argument wasn't that. The argument was we do not need to have a massive oversupply of the unskilled labour market. Of course, we want good, skilled people, innovators, wealth creators to come to our country. Even though we accept it will be to the detriment of other countries. Uh, Jonathan, thank you uh, for the conduct of this evening. Uh, I want to make one very simple point to you, ladies and gentlemen. This is a numbers game. Just think about the history of this country. Think about how we've managed migration. Think about how we've proudly uh, given refuge to those fleeing in fear of their lives and add up all of those numbers and they are as nothing compared to what has happened in the last 15 years. We have seen, if if we get out of the wealthier parts of London, and go to the poorer bits of London, or get or get out into the rest of the country. Um, I think that the uh, proposers of this motion have got slightly rose-tinted spectacles. Something very dramatic has happened in the course of the last 15 years. A country uh, that was generally very much at ease with itself is now, I've found in many parts of the country, incredibly tense. We have division and growing enmities in our market towns and cities that I never thought we'd see, and I don't want to see. We already have a massive social problem in integrating the 4 million people that have come here in the last 15 years. The last thing we need to do is to carry on with a policy of open-door, irresponsible, uncontrolled immigration. This motion is in itself irresponsible. Nobody, nobody sensibly could say that we shouldn't have some degree of control over this issue. We can argue then whether it's a net 80,000 a year or 50,000 a year or whatever it is, but at least then we would be in control. Um, I'd have thought 50,000 was nearer the mark, but either way, we need to be in control of it. We need to be selective. It is irresponsible and we are betraying our working-class communities in this country, and many, as Harriet mentioned, of our ethnic minorities, feel betrayed by what has happened since 1997, and indeed they have, and so I urge you to vote for common sense and to oppose this motion. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. So if you, if you agree with Nigel Farage, remember you're slipping in the piece of paper that says against. Our next person to sum up, uh, and state, you can do it from here, uh, David Aronovich, two minutes to you.
7: Thank you. Um, I can't help wondering that when Nigel's Huguenot ancestors came over, there wasn't the leader of a kind of small party around, let's call him Wat Farage. Um, <laughs> leading a campaign to have them sent back on the basis either that they had life-threatening illnesses, either pox or French warts or something like that, um, or that they were over-competing with Smithfield weavers, etc., who were going to be out of a job and not actually being able to tell you in the end which it was that he was more scared of. It's just that he wished they wouldn't come, whichever it was. Um, In fact... The scale of immigration that we've seen is not unprecedented. David Goodhart can only get it to be unprecedented in his book by treating the Irish immigration to this country, which was in percentage terms far greater than the immigration we've seen recently, by treating as if it was somehow indigenous immigration, and the Irish from vi- the Irish people from villages like Skibbereen, etc., uh, in the 1840s, were assessed as assimilable and as assimilated to British communities. From ..from Brighton to Liverpool... Um, as, uh, a, ..as a British person, as an English person... ..would have been... As an English person would have said... Uh, Actually, an awful lot of it happened incredibly quickly, David... ..and it was a very high-level immigration. As I, said, you, as I said, you finessed it, let alone finessing internal migration... ..from the country to the towns, which happened... ..at a far more significant scale. I only say that to say that times of great change... ..see people on the move. And what we're very good at, if we allow it to happen is reconstructing communities and creating new communities. And you know what? In answer to the question that happened, that's exactly what has happened in London. Communities are not just people who look the same and speak exactly the same languages when they start. They are much more mobile than that. They are communities of interest, people with small children, meet each each other outside schools and discover that they have things in common with each other. That's how communities are created, and they can be created by all kinds of people, including immigrants and in London, this incredibly successful capital, as Ken said, they have been uh, created, and to huge success, success. In other words, mass migration, certainly in this capital, and I think in the country, has been a great success, and we have nothing to fear from it. Thank you. Um... Thank you very much
3: indeed. And uh, I'll go next to somebody against the motion and who the next person will be, I think, is going to be David. No, it's reversal, Harriet now, I'm so sorry. So, Harriet, it is you who's up and you've got two minutes. Uh, And particularly, I wonder if you could address that question that came at the end, which was uh, about... For example, uh, this, this worry that people have uh, about how long it would take for somebody to count. How long the one of the very first questions that was asked well, about how long it takes to assimilate. So let's well, I mean, we've had some
2: brilliant um, arguments from the other side, but I find that their arguments lack logic and they lack heart. I mean, what really puzzles me is they seem to love immigrants when they're just over there somewhere, or just on their way here, and all just arrived, but once they've stayed here, once they have children here, they, this, this other side just seem to forget about them or not like them. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, David David Aronovich on his in his blog. Uh, describes um, some of the people that I know as, you know, festering and littering the streets, um, which I find actually quite obnoxious. But it's, once they've been here for a generation, he feels that he can say that about them, um, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, what does he think is going to happen when these Poles, for example, when they their children then go through our state education system. I mean, are they going to be... They're going to be as sort of unmotivated and unskilled as the people now that he dismisses as littering our streets. I mean, I have a friend who works in a pupil referral unit, and they already... This, this is a school a unit where children who have been really bad and been kicked out of every possible school are sent. They already have three poles in that pupil referral unit. So, you know, why do you just lose interest in immigrants when they're the second generation.
3: Okay. I th- You've got tw- tw- you know, 25, 30 seconds, so just.
2: Okay. I'm just saying, I think that migration is allowing us to duck out from the really serious thing that is facing, issue that's facing us in this company, country, which is lack of social mobility. And we are simply not doing anything about it because we can have immigrants coming in. What we should be doing is, is, is trying to make our own people as skilled and as motivated.
3: OK. Thank you very much. That's your closing argument. Thank you. Um, Ken Livingstone, it's your chance to sum up, and I just want you to pick up one question we didn't get an answer for. Somebody asked about the housing. It was You yeah. particularly talked about housing. Who's going to pay for it, they said. So well, if you can pick up.
6: Uh, two minutes can... to you. I've been a manager for 40 years, and every budget I produced has been balanced on revenue. Uh, And I think it's only been about five or six national budgets. So that's why we have the debt problem we have, not just the banking crisis. Western politicians have always borrowed when there's a recession, as Keynes advised. they never set to the next chapter, which is when you've got a boom, you pay it back. And that's an endemic problem. So i always produced balanced budgets. So I always had the freedom to borrow money off the bond markets to do all things like the London Overground. I, and that's the key difference. Now, the way in which we could actually build housing without borrowing is, say, to the bloody Bank of England, instead of doing this quantitative easing, £375 billion, which has just flowed into the international financial system, produce the money to build the homes, the Bank of England would be the owner. They'd be managed by local authorities. It's not increasing debt, it's increasing the asset base of the country. Then, just finally on this issue, what, how we define when someone becomes British, whatever. What I like about being British is there are no rules about being bloody British. You can live exactly whatever mad way you want. Uh, as long as you don't break the law, unlike France, with uh, some fairly rigid and unpleasant rules. And if I think about it, if you. I represented Stoke Newton with the largest Orthodox Jewish community I've met in anywhere in Europe. Uh, have we been diminished because they've retained much of their culture? Whereas other Jews have virtually lost? I mean, I, I know Jews who have never got involved in their religion at all. Uh, and each person who comes in makes their own choice. I mean, twenty years down the road. There'll be people of Muslim origin who've never read the Quran. There'll be others still devoutly following it. We aren't diminished by that diversity. I believe we're strengthened by it. And just finally, I totally really struck by Harriet's opening speech. It was very similar to mine. She identified a problem that has hit the working class. There's two answers, though. Was that caused by immigration? Or was it caused by the failed neoliberal experiment of Thatcher and Reagan? because i'm a guardian reader you won't be surprised to discover interesting chart this week about how poorly britain and america are doing on the three Rs. we're at the bottom uh, of that but we're the most unequal of all the societies they were looking at this is the tragedy we're in a mess communities have been destroyed because of the failure of our economic policies not because someone came here from abroad okay thank you
3: We're hearing a little unpleasant chime, which I don't know what that quite denotes, but we'll perhaps find out. We're going to wait a second. This is the piece of paper with the results, which is crucial. Um, It's true. Now, normally that's a metaphor about what's happening to immigration and our society, but it's actually um, maybe more literal. Um, I want to go next to our uh, penultimate speaker, uh, David Goodhart. And I want you, if you can, David, to take up the point that somebody did ask, they said they are British, they're not white British, but they're British. What does that have to do with it, she said, and it's not helpful.
4: So you're summing up. Um, We have to remember that the situation is not a static one. Uh, To return to this guy, Paul Collier, who I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, a a very influential and important development economist, his recent book, Exodus, about why large-scale emigration does not help poor countries had at its heart a... A model um, which describes why immigration, sorry, emigration will be of a rising scale over the next. 100, 150 years or so, perhaps before the, when the world becomes more kind of evenly developed, then, then immigration is going to cease to become a big issue. But for the time <laughs> being, there, there are three things that mean that it's going to remain a huge issue. And there are going to be huge flows unless we have, you know, responsible, fair restrictions in rich countries. One of them is the fact that there's a huge income gap, obviously, between poor countries and rich countries, reduced a little bit by China and India, but not very much. His second point was that there are now very large diasporas in rich countries like ours, which reduce both the psychological and economic cost of movement. So, I mean, you know, it was much harder to, to be a, a Sikh Indian coming to Southall in 1960 than it is today. Thirdly, there are many more people in poor countries who actually have the wherewithal, the kind of middling-income people in poor countries, and huge proportions of them want to move. Uh, and, I, and, you know, who can blame them? But it creates this hugely... It's an uh, unevenly developed world where, the, you know, the, the the most ambitious and brightest people in the poor countries come to the rich countries. Uh, they, you know, and 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 in some cases damage the interests of poorer people in rich countries. Let's have more even development of the world. that will be fairer for everybody. Um, when when a country is changing its its immigration policy, as ours is, I'm, I'm a Labour supporter, but I think the government is broadly speaking getting it right. There are bound to be mistakes. There are bound to. There are bound to be unfairnesses. Uh, you know, you're you're moving from one whole system to another. Um, but I mean, w- w- I mean, the, David Rodmitch. I mean, talks about. Um, I mean. The whole point about the Labour Party was about at least limiting competition in the labour market. I mean, that sort of was what it was for. And now the idea is to have not not only no, um, no protection at all, uh, you know, just you know competing with people from all sorts of other countries who have uh, you know who who are coming from have much lower wage expect expectations and so on we've got to have some degree of, of fellow citizen favoritism including all citizens of whatever race or religious background i mean of course i believe that i mean it's just just basic um but fellow citizen favoritism that that, that gives people a sense of common citizenship and common norms otherwise we're, we're not going to have a welfare state in 30 or 40 years time
3: okay um Susie James, you are going to be our final speaker thank you we, we, do, we do now have the results, so if you can confine this to really a very brief intervention from you, minute or two maximum, that would be great. And off you go, Susie arms
0: Well, I want to know where this warehouse is, where we're putting our weakest performers, because I think I've got a couple of candidates. Um, <laughs> they're not very good at sums, not very good at numbers, I'm not going to bother trying to teach David Goodhart economics because better people than me have been trying over the past year or two uh, to teach him about the lump of labor fallacy. And uh, he's not got it yet, and I don't suppose he's going to. He's also not very good at reading. Um, Paul Collier's book its not a great book. He's he's a terrific economist, and he knows an enormous amount about poor countries. but he doesn't say the things that David says. He says we have to really worry about accelerating, not current levels, accelerating levels of uh, losses of smart people permanently from very poor countries that's a legitimate worry and a legitimate concern you don't solve it however by putting up barriers and preventing them coming you solve it by and he's right for once um on more equal distribution between rich and poor countries i'd like nigel farage to have the guts to come down and see me in 19 Princet street the museum of immigration uh it's in the middle of brick lane Uh, where I spend most of my life, so I know quite a lot about the people he claims that we don't know anything about. Uh, He might learn something about past immigration instead of telling these fairy stories about how wonderful and lovely and welcoming everything was in the past. Um, So if he'll come, that would be fantastic, come and speak to some of the people uh, in Brick Lane. I think the key thing here is that some of the issues that Harriet talked about are absolutely desperately important. They really are. They're at the core of what we ought to care about as an equal society that gives equal and fair opportunities to everybody. But we don't do that by scapegoating immigration. It's not migrants that caused the class system in this country. It's not migrants that cause social immobility. And it's not migrants that make it so hard for these young people whom we failed to get jobs.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you. I I I want to thank Susie and all all six speakers. I think absolutely terrific quality of debate tonight. Uh, The result is fascinating. And testament to the fact that our debaters on both sides succeeded is the fact that the don't knows began the evening at 33%, fully a third of everyone here, and that figure has shrunk to 2%, which is very, very unusual, and that I think is a tribute to the, uh, the performances from our speakers. Before the debate, those for the motion, who did indeed believe let them come, uh, was, stood at 30%, and that has rocketed upward to 47%. Those, those against... Began the evening at 37%. In other words, those on this side of the argument who said don't don't let them all come. 37%, and they too have shot up to 51%. It means that the motion has been defeated. This side is victorious. Thank you. Hold on. Two. A uh, Last thing left, I want to remind you all, crucial piece of information, that the bar upstairs will be open until 9.15. But for now, please join me in thanking our speakers, Susie Symes, Ken Livingston, David Aronovich, David goodhart Harris, and Nigel Farrell. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions, free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.